This is Big Talk, Michael Glab here. My guest this week in the studio, David Brent Johnson. A friend of mine, by the way. It's true. And he is a WFHB alumnus. Yes. But right now, he is a jazz maven. Don't you love that word, maven? I do, I do. That's <laughs> a great word. I, I named a character after that in a story, actually. <laughs> no He is a writer, too, and we're going to get into things like that. Uh, he's at uh, the uh, Bloomington NPR affiliate, WFIU, the jazz director there. He's the host of the shows Just You and Me and Nightlights. As I say, he's also a writer. He's written for The Rider. He, he, he uh, has written liner notes for a two-volume compilation of David Baker works performed by, and we went over this to make sure I get the proper <laughs> pronunciation, the Buscelli Wallarab Jazz Orchestra. Did I do it right? You did. Ooh. Very well, yeah. <laughs> David, thanks for being on Big Talk. Oh, it's, it's, this is a genuine pleasure, Mike. I always uh, enjoy talking with you when I amble into the, the book corner. Yep, and, and we, we, you know, we just spent about 45 minutes just talking about nothing. <laughs> I thought we'd and be everything. finished. I thought we'd be finished. Actually, we talked about big stuff, World War II and music and why you're into it and all of that. I couldn't get this guy to shut up for God's sakes. <laughs> yeah, no, it was great. I'd love to join you again. Well, thanks a lot. <laughs> It's always just a lot of fun to talk with you about anything. So David has won two Indiana Society of Professional Journalists awards for arts writing. Do you even know what those were for? Do you even have those anywhere? <laughs> I, I think they're in the closet somewhere. One one was for some articles I wrote for a, a, a much missed uh, Alterna Weekly we used to have here in town called the Bloomington Independent, uh-huh, uh, yes. formerly the Bloomington Voice, kind of our version of the Chicago Reader yeah. or Nouveau in Indianapolis, and. I used to do a lot of writing for for them. I found Sorry. that you had done a sort of an interesting little series. It was called So and So in Five Songs. NPR oh. used to have uh, uh, something called a Blog Supreme, which was their jazz site, oh. basically, and they had a, a number of people from around the country occasionally contribute to it. Usually, people who were jazz DJs or jazz writers of some kind. Yeah. Uh, and it was called Take Five. It actually still exists, but it's run now by uh, WBGO out of Newark. So I ended up writing, I don't know, 15, 18 of them or yeah. something over the over the course of about a four or five year period. And it was basically like take somebody like Nina Simone. And, and it was, it, was a, 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 it could be a real head scratcher because especially, you know, with jazz folks, they're going to, they're going to be like, how could you leave out? <laughs> oh, yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah, yeah. I, you know, so like if, if you if to pick five Nina Simone songs, and you try to do it in such a way that it's it's a diverse representation of her repertoire. She was diverse to begin with. But inevitably, somebody's going to leave a comment in the comment section yeah. saying like, well, how can you, how think can you leave of, out this song? Think of when you did those things. How many times someone said, what a an idiot. <laughs> <Right>? <laughs> well, well, it's like I said. I think it's it's not just jazz. It's probably any any especially any cultural field that has a small yeah. but fanatical band of of, of, of who know fanatics or followers. Who yeah. Know. And you know, I I love I love that religious like zeal. You know, uh, yeah. you, you, you got to have that. But then it, you've got to also Put if you're somebody right. <laughs> it, yeah, and if you're somebody 
dealing with creating media content, you have to be thinking of uh, a, a, a general audience, you know? I mean, this is something I think about a lot as a, as a jazz DJ because I think it's especially easy with jazz to fall down a certain kind of rabbit hole and only be speaking to a really narrow... Uh, as we all know, Dizzy Gillespie's famous alternate take of, you know, <laughs> Diggin' Diz from 1946, the version that didn't go released from blah, blah, blah. You know, 95% of your listeners are like... Yeah, you know, I mean, they're, they're like, who cares, you know? And I think as a jazz DJ, part of the mission is to, to try to pull as many people into the music as, as you can because it can seem like maybe kind of a daunting thing or it can seem like a, a hip insider club thing. And, and as a jazz DJ, I don't want to ever make people feel like that. I, I'm like, I just love this music and I want other people to, to like it too. I know they're not going to, most of them are not going to love it to the degree I have. And you don't ever want to have this like, Eat your vegetables approach, which is which is another danger with with jazz or with other cultural forms of yeah. art or whatever is that you can it's good for you. You know, it's I mean, actually, I do think listening to jazz is ultimately in the long run is, is good for a person. But uh, I don't you can't base your programming on that. You can't yeah. assume that they you just I, I just want to provide music that people like hearing whether they're really listening to it or whether they're out in their yard working or they're you know a lot of people are tuning in and out you know also they're they're maybe listening to you for 10 or 15 minutes maybe five minutes you know you can't uh you i mean that's why you always hear terry gross on fresh air say if you're if you're just joining us my guest today is so and so you you i mean certainly there are people who are listening to the entire show but there are a lot of people who are not anyway the whole point of it being that i think it's really important not to not to be a, a jazz snob or not to to make people feel like you're excluding them or I just want to bring people into the music. I think it's a wonderful music. It's it's endless how how much of it there is and how much of it both modern and you know classic stuff you can explore. And when I first got into listening to jazz, I was in my mid twenties and I was I was like you know one of those um, converted zealots you know who uh um you know had a a very narrow view when i first started listening like i you know i only listened to like blue note hard bop and <laughs> bebop and you know and i listen now to kinds of jazz that i would have probably been horrified 20 years ago like what am i doing listening to you know i like i really like a lot of fusion now which is something i had no no use for when i first started listening i mean i guess it's just like a lot of things like you the deeper you get into things the more open-minded you become and and it, it broadens you in, in a lot of ways one of my philosophies on this show, one of my philosophies in life, period, is to ask the first question, the basic question. So I'm going to throw it at you right now. David Brent Johnson, what is jazz? <laughs> what is jazz? Uh, what was the, the famous uh, monk or armed uh, uh, man, uh, if you got to ask, you'll never know? Right, that's, right. that's That's the, the ultimate cliched reply to that. I heard that, that. said to, about uh, Louis Armstrong. <laughs> I, I think he... It, I think it was I Armstrong. Think it's attributed to everybody, probably. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, it's become quite an aphorism. Uh, you know, the the easy thing is to say it's an improvisational music, that it's people taking, uh, taking pre-existing arrangements and coming up with creative variations on them. Uh, but it's, I think to me, it's just, it's a certain kind of, it's also a certain kind of feeling. It's a, it's a more kind of nuanced musical expression of, of life. I mean, I really got into, I, I didn't like jazz when I was a teenager. I, no my, my best friend, my best friend in grade school and high school was a big jazz bow. 
And I used to call him a jazz snob. In fact, when I encountered that term later on, I was like, hey, I thought I invented that term. Because <laughs> <laughs> you see it a lot now, but I'm sure I didn't invent it. Anyway, I, I mean, he would he would play stuff for me, and I'd be like, uh, and then I'd play, I was all into indie rock, and I'd play it for him. And I, you know, I remember I played the Smiths for him. He's like, what's wrong with that guy? Talking about <laughs> the Morrissey lead singer. What's his problem anyway? You know, he. Uh, well, everybody asks that about <laughs> him, for God's sake. You know, but but it wasn't until I was in my early 20s that I really got into jazz. I never would have, you know, I, I this same best friend, I remember asking him, I said, you know, uh, what's a, you know, what are some good jazz records to buy? But I was being more of a hipster, you know. I just yeah. kind of wanted to have four or five jazz records to have in my collection. Around the same time, I also asked this guy, Sean Pelton, who lived in my dorm here in Bloomington, who is now the Saturday Night Live drummer, has been for a long time, went, oh. on, to, went on to become a really renowned, pretty much world-famous drummer. Um, I, he was a really interesting guy. He had a very kind of impish, zen kind of art, zen, impish zen monk meets Art Blakey kind of vibe going on with him, and <laughs> talked like a real hepcat man, you know? <laughs> and I remember asking him, um, I, I ran into him one day, and I said, I said, hey, what's a good first jazz album to buy? And he looked at me for a moment, and then he goes, Miles Davis, kind of blue. Make love to it, man. And then he, like, turned around and walked away, and that was it. <laughs> he said nothing else. Like, <laughs> that was, you know, uh, and, and, and so, and of course, kind of blue is often suggested as a starter jazz album, but rarely, I think, is it accompanied by that advice to use it as a kind of musical aphrodisiac or something. Um, but anyway, so I, 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 you know, had about half a dozen jazz albums. And then one day I was sitting in the Daily Grind, which is a long gone coffee house that was in Dunkirk Square here in Bloomington. Uh-huh. And uh, I had actually worked there at one point, but I was not working there at the time. And I was, I think I was writing a letter to a friend and they had music on the overhead. And this music was playing and I went up, I just suddenly, you know, the siren song or something. I don't know. It just pulled me in. It was it was a Count Basie recording from the late '30s. Jimmy Rushing was singing. It's not even a notable or particularly memorable Count Basie recording. It's a song called "Now Will You Be Good." <laughs> Lester Young doesn't even solo on it. The great tenor saxophonist who played with Basie. But I went up and asked him what was playing, and they told me. And I went across the street to a record store that's gone now called Streetside Records, and they had a cassette. I don't think it had that song on it, but it was the same period. It was like from 37, 38. Just this classic, swinging, vibrant music from the big band era. That's what uh, Count Basie did? Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, it just, it was infectious. And Jumping at the woodside. Yeah, exactly. Right. That was on the tape uh -huh. I bought. Yeah, just like all these just really, you know, amazing, like I said, vibrantly swinging songs. And there's just some kind of joy in them and some kind of feeling that that I was probably 24 at the time I can't remember it just it, it was like I had this awakening I always tell people it was like my you know light on the road to Damascus moment you know <laughs> like I just suddenly and it was it almost was like a religious conversion in a weird way I mean I went through a period where almost all I listened to was jazz I still listen to indie rock but I just listened to jazz so much of the time I mean I was just zealous and it just seemed to match life as I was experiencing it in my mid-20s and still to this day it just it's 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 so subtle and yet it's it's so direct it's so creative it's uh it it, it speaks the language of life I guess in a way that I just never get tired of listening to and and the deeper I get into it the more areas uh I I, I find to explore 
that, like I was saying earlier, I would have never ventured into my first year or two of zealot-eyed conversion. Oh, that's not jazz. You know, when you <laughs> ask me what is jazz, you know, I mean, I have such a liberal definition of that now. Probably a lot of people in the jazz world would disagree. Probably there are people who think that, I mean, I, this has happened to me at FIU where even people who like the show and listen to it regularly have emailed me or called me up occasionally and said, you know, that, that rec- I love your show, but that recording you're playing, that's not really jazz. Uh, you know, uh, I, think, I think I got a response like that to, uh, I played a Chris Steely, Brad Meldow recording. And, you know, you could argue theoretically that there wasn't enough improvisation going on maybe in it or this or that. But to me, I don't want to get bogged down in parameters yeah. of, uh, I'm willing to break those parameters. To, to, okay, it's like what Duke Ellington said. There's two kinds of music. There's good music, and then there's the other kind. Right. You know, and uh, and that's what I. That tends to be my guiding philosophy on what I'm going to play. No, I'm not going to play Metallica. Although if Metallica did something kind of jazzy, I would I would play that. You know, out of curiosity, just to see what people would think of it. You know, uh, I, I don't want to be what people refer to as the jazz police. The jazz police, <laughs> yeah. you know, who who show up and they're like, "That's not jazz." At the same time, I don't want to I don't want to disrespect the the music or or and I don't want to disrespect the people who love it so zealously, you know. I and that's this is something that happens without getting into being a big radio nerd about it. There's such a sometimes there's such a backlash against the jazz lovers from uh. a radio program, like, "Don't program for those." Those people, right. you know, and yeah, you don't want to be programming for a very narrow three to four percent slice of the audience or whatever. At the same time, I guess it's like in politics. It's like, you know, don't complete don't ignore your base. <laughs> right. Right. And I don't mean to put it so crudely, but it's it's like I just I want to pull people in who don't even listen to jazz much or say I mean, the best response you can get is when somebody says, you know, I don't even like jazz, but I, I like your show. You know, that's that's when you you know, hopefully you're doing something right and you're just giving people, hopefully, an enjoyable listening experience. Back in the 1980s and even into the 1990s, it was almost a stereotype. NPR stations overnight would have the jazz program from like midnight to, you know, the morning right, drive yeah, show. yeah, yeah. And then they gradually started saying, Man, we're not going with that anymore. And, yeah. and it's sort of, so where, generally with NPR stations, where does jazz sit now in terms of priorities? Uh, it's, it's at the back of the bus. It's pretty, pretty low. Um, Even I, though you're on in the mid-afternoon, uh, yeah. five days a week. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah. You I, and Will, brother William. You're right, and I should say that I'm speaking about it at the national level, not yes. at the FIU level. I feel, I mean, I I feel truly lucky to be doing jazz programming in this town, uh, not just because FIU has for at least forty, maybe fifty years now had some kind of weekday afternoon jazz presence. Which you're right is extraordinary in this day and age. There there are still some there are still some all jazz or mostly jazz NPR stations out there. They're few and far between. There are a lot of stations that still carry some programs. NPR still produces one syndicated jazz show called Jazz Night in America. But for the last 20, 25 years, the push has been very much in the direction of talk and news. Yeah, yeah. And and with with musical and cultural programming just kind of seeded in. You'll hear Christian McBride come on All Things Considered from time to time. In fact, he was just on there last week talking, or he was just on there not long ago talking about when does a, a, 
a jazz song become a, a standard. Um, but it's it almost feels like they're throwing a bone to, the, yeah. to, their, to their their jazz crowd. It's definitely not a. It's just musical programming in general is not a priority anymore at, at NPR. If I'm not mistaken, is not Nightlight syndicated? You can hear it in various stations. Yeah, it's around on the in country. Chicago. It's on like it's on about 15 stations around the country. It's also on in the Philippines in Manila. But it's wow, on. You're global, it's, man. Oh, that's that's the only uh, the only uh, place where you can hear it outside of the United States. So if I go to Manila and if I mention the name David Brent Johnson, everybody's head in the restaurant is going to turn. They're going to be like, "Who the hell is he talking about? <laughs> Who is this strange American?" Uh, no, it's uh, it's on about 15 stations, which is actually not a very large number of stations. But we FIU has a number of programs. Uh, Afterglow, which is now hosted by Mark Chilla, is on about the same number of stations. Harmonia, which is actually now going to be distributed by Public Radio International, is on. Earth Eats is on a few stations. And Joe Getz uh, is doing uh, an overnight classical service called Classical Works. It's on uh, uh, being picked up by more and more stations. And I say all this just to say, again, I feel very lucky to be at FIU uh, for a variety of reasons, one of which is the station invests resources in producing original programming. That's another thing a lot of NPR stations either can't do yeah. or they're not willing to put the resources into it. But we've also got the School of Music here. Yeah. That's a huge, huge factor in, you know, because what what FIU is is what you would call a dinosaur format now in, in public radio in terms of we have a, a classical news jazz mixed format. And most modern day programming directors would tear their hair out over that. They'd be like, this is, you know, this is a 70s, 80s NPR format. You know, I alluded to this already. You started out in radio, I believe, right here, maybe even in this very room in which we sit. I, I did. I can give you the, I can give you a succinct version of how I got into radio, if you want to hear it, because it, it involves FHB for sure. But uh, before I worked, I, I used to work at Tracks on Kirkwood, uh, which is still around. It's not as much of a music. When I worked there, it was all music. Uh, I, I worked there in the boom days of the CD era, the mid-90s, when CDs just, we would have midnight sales for the new Pearl Jam or the new REM. When they would be released. Right. You know, like people would Tuesday come down at Monday midnight. night at midnight. We'd yeah. have like 100 people lined up to buy the new Pearl Jam CD. Right. I mean, that that's like, you know, that's like, you know, the the Model T now or something. You right. know, in terms well, people of, still do that for certain movies. Right. They do it for movies. Like Star Wars. Right. But for music, for music releases, that never happens anymore. Yeah. Anyway, I, I was a jazz fanatic already, and I, I tracks out a small jazz section where I was responsible for it. And I would just, I would get in these long conversations with people who came in who were jazz fans. And there was a fellow that used to come in, and we would talk a lot about jazz. His dad, who's still around, is, was, was and is a jazz musician. And we were talking one day in the alley behind Blooming Foods, the old Blooming Foods uh, behind the spoon, the Runcible Spoon that's no right. longer there. I used to go over there to get my lunch. And we were just talking. He said, have you ever, have you ever thought about doing a radio show? And I was like, no, I, I never have. He's like, you, you really, I think it'd be a great idea if you did a jazz radio show. And I was like, oh, yeah, that would be kind of fun, you know. But, I mean, it's just it just seemed like the most, the most implausible thing. This was the first notion you had of Yeah. I, I mean, I was working in a record store. I was doing some freelance writing. I still had my thoughts focused on, on writing and maybe going back to school and getting a library science degree or something eventually. Um, so, I don't know, another year went by or so, and then I, uh, a friend of mine, I, I, I went out and started working at Borders when it was out on the east side, 
and uh, this is after tracks, right? And okay. and um, uh, I became friends with the the husband of a woman who worked there as well, and he was a huge music fanatic, all kinds of music. And I talked to him. I said, you know, would you be interested in doing a radio show together that would cover a, a wide variety of vintage American music? Uh, you know, jazz, blues, R&B, country, folk, whatever, basically cover the 30s through the 70s. Yeah. And he was really interested in that. And so I had listened to FHB, but I'd never been down here before. Uh, and I came down here and talked to Jim Mannion, and he, he said, still oh, it's here. still here. And uh, he said, oh, it sounds interesting, write up a proposal. So I did. And, uh, and a few weeks later, we were waiting for uh, he, he basically gave us the green light to go ahead and start training and uh, do this show. And we were waiting for a slot to open up. Back then, people actually in the 90s, people would actually, a three to six in the morning slot might open up and you'd agonize over whether or not you should take it because it was hard to get a slot on air. But it was there. For but you. it was there. Yeah. And some weird slot like that had opened up. And Greg Adams, he was my friend that, that I did the show with. And I were kind of agonizing over whether or not we should take this wee hours in the morning slot. And then suddenly the Friday one to three slot in the afternoon opened up and uh -huh. Jim offered it to us. And so we did this show called Back to the Tracks. And then we ended up kind of splitting off into we were offered specialty show slots. And, uh, and Greg ended up doing a wonderful show called Rhythm Ranch that aired here on Monday nights. And I ended up doing the Wednesday night jazz program. And I just really got into it. I would spend a lot of time uh, putting together shows because I just love doing it. I love trying to create narratives. I remember, and, and this was a key moment, uh, a key moment here at WFHB for me was, uh, it was, I think, the 80th anniversary of Charlie Parker's birth. And I put together this two-hour special. I found an old interview with Parker. I, I spliced in these interview segments of him talking with his music. I basically tried to present kind of a rough two-hour documentary about Charlie Parker. I get this call in the middle of the show, and um, um, I answer the phone, and, and this guy on the other end says, Hi, this is Joe Bourne. I just wanted to tell you how much I'm enjoying your Charlie Parker program. No kidding. Joe Bourne, of course, was this you know legendary jazz DJ at WFIU. I went home that night to, to my wife at the time, Brenda, and I was like, I burst in the door, and I'm like, Brenda, Brenda, Joe Bourne called me up to tell me how much she's enjoying my Charlie Parker show. You know, it was like I'd gotten the papal blessing, you yes, know? that's right. Uh, it, 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 it made me feel like, oh, I'm doing something right if Joe Bourne was listening to the show and was enjoying it. And so that just kind of whetted my appetite even more. And I remember one time Brenda asked me, she said, if you could do anything at all in, in the world for a living, what would you do? And I said, well, I, I guess I'd do what Joe Bourne does, but that's not ever going to happen. Uh -huh. I, I, you know, and it wasn't just because... I. I mean, Joe was still in his fifties, and I didn't. I didn't even think about you know if he would. I, it just didn't seem possible. It just He'd didn't, be there forever. Well, or, and, or that if if he left, they wouldn't necessarily continue doing jazz, or yeah. that they. I, I just it seemed implausible. Uh, Yael Cassander was here at FHB at the yes. time, and then she got a full time job at FIU, and she was really egging me on to propose doing some kind of show at FIU, and so I was doing that for a year or two. I was pitching various kind of mini-series jazz documentary type things to them that potentially I was hoping maybe Joe would run as a special on his show. And they were interested, but nothing was really uh, uh, coming of it. And then one day in 2002, uh, I was outside mowing the lawn and the, the, the voicemail went off and I didn't, I was like, oh, I'll go check out when I'm done mowing the lawn. And it was a message from Christina Kuzmich, the general manager of 
FIU, and she was she was saying something to the effect that Joe Bourne was going to have to go on family leave for a few weeks, and they needed somebody to come in and produce some shows while he was away, and would I be interested in that? So, so uh, of course, I called back immediately and, and was like, <laughs> yeah, me. yeah, 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 you know, put on my suit and tie and march <laughs> over there, you know, and, uh, and I felt like I was walking into the hollowed halls, you know, it's yeah. like, it's like you've been called up to the Cubs, you know, and you're, you're walking into Wrigley right. for the first time, you know, that's what it felt like. Uh, and uh, um, so I ended up filling in for him while he was out and he, he had to go on leave a couple of times, uh, was dealing with some health issues and other things. And uh, they basically ended up keeping me on as a as a part timer, um, but I really owe a lot to Yael Cassander to, for that because she was the one who recommended that they call me. It was kind of a fortuitous, uh, you know, convergence of circumstances. The funny thing is, I still kept doing my show here for a couple of years while I was also doing Joe's show from time to time. I did a show here. Another, I think, key moment. Actually, I think it happened right before I started FIU. Was I did a three hour special on Hoagie Carmichael. Richard Sudalter, his biographer, was here in town. We did the interview down here in this room, and I went home and, and edited it, did all this stuff, and, and had it on the air that night from 6 to 9. And again, it was one of those moments where I felt like I, I love doing this, and I think I can do it maybe well enough to hopefully – I was just doing it out of love, you know, out of passion. And I always tell this to people, uh, you know, like I always say this to people – it's like if there's something you love doing, just find a way to do it, and don't don't expect that you'll get a financial reward for it. You, right. The most important thing is you do it because you're you feel like you were put on earth to do it, and yeah. you got to do it. And sometimes it will lead to becoming part of your livelihood, maybe all of your livelihood. But you just you got to do what you want to do. You know, whatever it is, whether it's painting or writing or you know, you know, as much as you write, I mean, it's like you got to get it out. And I was, I, was, <laughs> I was younger than, not that I feel ancient now, but I mean, I had a ton of energy and I was working, I, by this time I left Borders, I was working at the IU Main Library, which was a, a godsend because it was right next door to FIU. Yeah. And I was still doing my Wednesday show here. And sometimes they would call me up at FI, from FIU on very short notice and ask me to fill in for Joe. Yeah. And there were a couple of times, more than a couple of times, when I would work at the IU Wells Library from 7.30 till 3.15 in the afternoon. I would dash over to FIU, I'd do Joe's show, uh, and stay on the board and do All Things Considered till 545, then hop on my bike with a backpack full of CDs and ride over here and do my jazz show from 6 to 9. And a couple of times people called up the station here at FHP and they said, didn't I just hear you on FIU? <laughs> and I felt like the biggest air, airwave hog. You know what I mean? Yeah, like, yeah. This guy is, what's this guy trying to do? What's he the gonna voice of Bloomington. Ride over to TTS next and hijack their <laughs> yeah. late night indie rock show or something? He knows jazz. He is the jazz director at WFIU, host of Just You and Me and Nightlights. He's David Brent Johnson. I am really thankful that you uh, agreed to come on the show here. He's a WFHB alumnus. A proud WFHB alumnus. Yeah, I, I owe so much to this station. I mean, seriously, I really do. They, Where else can you walk in off the street never having done radio before and they'll put you on the air? <laughs> what, what other maniacs would do that, right? Only WFHB. <laughs> this house full of maniacs. Two here. of them sitting right here. You said it. I call him DBJ. He's a friend of mine. David Brent Johnson, thank you for being on Big Talk. Oh man, thank you for asking me. This is this is a dream come true. I had <laughs> hoped to be a guest on Big Talk, so you have you have fulfilled a, a fantasy for me. So thank you very much. Thanks for putting up with my unending stream of talk. Mm -hmm.